welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Plus Podcast. My name is Shane Filcher, I use all pronouns, and I am the Executive Director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This month, we're discussing the escalation of hate violence against the LGBTQ Plus community, reviewing a groundbreaking study addressing the lack of safety in queer spaces, and mourning the loss of O'Shea Sibley, a talented dancer who was recently murdered in Brooklyn. Joining me in conversation today are Leslie Allen and Daisha Ray. Leslie Allen uses she, her pronouns and is a deputy director of the legal department at New York City's Anti-Violence Project, which proudly serves New York's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and HIV-affected communities. Since 2016, Leslie's legal practice specialized in intimate partner violence and intrafamilial sexual violence. Most recently, Leslie was a supervising attorney of the Family Law Unit of Philadelphia Legal Assistance, where she also oversaw the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School's Custody and Support Assistance Clinic. Leslie also worked in public health law with a research focus on HIV protections, LGBT anti-discrimination, and state civil commitment laws. Leslie graduated from Temple University's Beasley School of Law in 2014 and received her BA from the University of Colorado in 2010. Daisha Ray uses they, she pronouns and is a writer and advocate with nearly 20 years of experience in LGBTQ, sex work, feminist, and anti-violence organizing, communications, and policy work. As director of community organizing and public advocacy at the New York City Anti-Violence Project, they advocate to shift resources away from the criminal legal system and towards support for LGBTQ survivors of violence. Their non-writing fiction has been widely anthologized most recently in We Too, Essays on Sex Work and Survival. She was an editor of Spread Magazine and its respective best of anthology published by Feminist Press. Daisha has an MA in American Studies from Columbia University and a BA in Cultural Studies from the New School. Leslie, Daisha, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you, we're excited to be here. I hope everyone out there is already familiar with the Anti-Violence Project, or we're probably going to shorten that down to AVP a fair bit throughout our conversation today. But for those listeners who might not be as aware, can you tell us a little bit more about the organization? Sure, happily. So the New York City Anti-Violence Project started more than 40 years ago, and it began as a community-led safety initiative. Since then, we've really expanded to try to stop all forms of violence against the LGBTQ and HIV-affected communities, and this varies pretty widely. I'm the deputy director of the legal department, where we provide different types of legal services in diverse areas around New York City, including immigration law, family, housing, name change, but we are open to doing consults in almost all areas where at least we're going to help try to connect you with the next step, even if we don't bring legal expertise there. But the legal department is a very small part of AVP. The rest of AVP comprises of primarily of the hotline. The hotline is staffed by both permanent staff and volunteers. And then we also do both local and national public policy advocacy, education, training, and outreach. Sounds like quite the national footprint, despite being headquartered in New York City. That is definitely the the balance in the agency, both being New York focused and nationally focused. A big chunk of our conversation today is going to be focusing on a recently released study that was issued by the Anti-Violence Project, the LGBTQ plus Safe Spaces National Needs Assessment. Can the two of you tell us a little bit more about how this study came to be? Sure. So after the shooting in Colorado Springs last November, I remember very distinctly that the text thread and the meetings we had that following Monday morning and just thinking like, okay, so we're, we're back in this. And what does this mean for, for what our next move is? And one of the things that we realized as we've been responding to lots of um, hate violence over the past couple of years is that there's been a definite shift towards targeting LGBTQ safe spaces, so bars, um, other convening spaces, and there's not a lot of information about, not a lot of data about what what that's like and 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 what that impact actually produces in in community. We know what it's like in the immediate aftermath, but what does it mean for for groups throughout the country to experience targeted hate violence? So we came up with the idea of, of doing 
the survey and you know started kind of like rapidly ideating about what it would look like how how would we do this so avp one of our programs is the national coalition of anti-violence programs um, which is a coalition that we've run for 20 plus years and in that space historically we've done reports around individual experiences of intimate partner violence and hate violence but for this, it was like, okay, there's a different thing that's happening and has been happening for the past couple of years. And we need to figure out how to document that better and, and talk about what it means and how it shifts how we move. So that combined with over the last couple of years, we've been working pretty closely with Drag Story Hour chapters, both in New York and around the country, to support them around doing community safety planning to keep their events safer and to think through what do they need to do to keep their attendees safe, to keep their storytellers safe, and to preserve that as, as a space of of joy and community. So all these things were kind of like clicking into place and we came up with this idea of doing this national survey. And it was really important to us to not just ask what happened and to document incidents, but what was the response? Like what did you do next? How did you report it? To whom? And and what guided your decision making around what you needed in the aftermath? So it's, you know, it's it's a such a unique study because it's it's not just a documentation of like hate violence happens, but what next? And it really helps to reveal some of the really complex things around where do folks go to report? What do they expect from reporting and and what happens next? And and how do folks think about what does safety actually look like for them? So those were a lot of the questions that we kind of had in mind going into it. And we started constructing this the survey with a, our partners, uh, Strength and Numbers Consulting Group. And we turned it around in three weeks creating the survey and the website and getting it online by mid-December, which at the time I remember that first meeting of being like, oh yeah, we can do this by December. And we did. And also looking back is like, really? That was three weeks? Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's, that's where it, it kind of started in the late fall, early winter of, of last year. And the report was published in, in mid-July of this year. Aisha, thank you for taking us through the underlying need for this survey. It's my understanding that approximately 380 LGBTQ plus organizations and businesses responded to that initial call to action in December. Can you tell us kind of a, a little bit about how you found these organizations? And you already hinted a little bit about some of the survey responses, but I want to take a deeper dive here with that. Really yeah. Much. So one of the things that we we did initially is that we started to make a list of types of spaces. Like, what does it mean for a space to be a, a safer space for, for queer people? So we started with a list of, like, types of spaces. So that included healthcare and social services agencies like AVP, LGBT community centers, LGBT welcoming faith groups, formal informal groups that might not have a physical presence but might be only online college or university centers businesses so bars and and other spaces that are have significant commitment to lgbtq community and then also um, cultural institutions so there you know there are a handful of queer museums and galleries and spaces like that that are like visibly queer and like serve to hold that that kind of space so we started with that we had a team of, I think, about eight folks working on making these initial lists. So we started to think about, like, okay, are there, are there like, unifying member bases of, of some of these spaces? So, like, we found that there's a college pride index that rates colleges and universities as far as how LGBT-friendly they are, and that includes whether or not they have a, a center. So that was one of my areas where I was like state by state going through and, and looking to see like what kind of where do the folks have LGBT centers and colleges, including at private and public institutions from community colleges to graduate schools and, you know, and really thinking about like, how do we, what does that look like and what are the, what kind of space do they offer? 
and so that that was interesting to to kind of go through and and figure out like what does this actually look like and then so the team kind of split up into like different different spaces we were we were looking at and one of the things that i i realized late in the the process of of collecting data is that we really brought this very like nonprofit language and conversation to this so like through the report we we refer to responding organizations as groups or organizations. And I think the next time around, we would we would develop a deeper outreach plan for figuring out how to connect better with businesses and faith institutions, some of the groups that we didn't get as many of, not because they don't exist, but because we we're probably like speaking in a language that they're like, what is this? This is not for us. <laughs> yeah. So we, we looked at all those different kinds of groups and split up like how how we look at them so we you know there's also like there's an organization called centerlink that is basically the like central hub of all of the lgbt centers in the country they're not chapters of centerlink but it's their kind of central space to be able to talk about stuff that's that's going on programming professional standards all that kind of stuff so we had a pretty close collaboration with them throughout the whole process which turned out to be really helpful because we also in the data found that the two kinds of organizations that are most likely to have experienced hate violence are LGBTQ community centers and any org that serves queer youth. So the fact that we built those relationships during the outreach process, I think is really helpful for um, what comes next and figuring out how to support folks. Before we get to that, which we're definitely going to get to that, and I don't want to like dig in with too many technical math questions here because we're all lawyers we have a lot of lawyer listeners on that you know we're not going to go into like grad school level calculations of statistics and all that but I'm just curious with 380 responses was that kind of in the ballpark of what you were hoping for because that sounds like so many participants when I hear that number so I was wondering if you had kind of a target in mind when you went into this like gosh we hope 100 people participate 500 a thousand like what that might have looked like I mean, initially, yeah, we were like 2,000. I mean, I don't even know if there are 2,000 LGBT spaces in the country, but yeah, we were hoping for 500, but but 380 was is very significant. And we also, because of the way we were tracking responses, and although all the responses are anonymous, we were tracking where they were coming from. So it was our goal to get at least one response from every state. So that was more important than just the overall number and then to also make sure that the responses were well distributed across the different regions of the country so so in our weekly calls we were we were like okay you know where where are we lagging behind geographically or the types of institutions so and this you know this 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 map in the early part of the the report that shows we split it up into the four census regions and it was like pretty pretty even between the four different census regions of, of the number of respondents, which was great. And that was definitely what we were going for. You know, and I, I remember there there was like a moment in that the outreach process where we're like, how has no one from Massachusetts done this yet? And we were all like, let's call our Massachusetts people. And then, you know, and then also like, okay, we get why no one in Nebraska has done this, but like let's let's do some like careful outreach to to find who those folks might be. So we were really like looking at that regularly to make sure that, that we were getting that kind of distribution across the country. Uh, because just getting, you know, getting like New York and California reports is like, that's nice, but that's not the picture of a national report. Of course. Well, thank you so much for your thoughtful diligence and making sure all the states were represented. Do you want to take a minute to talk a little bit about specifically New York and the Northeast in terms of findings, or I guess rather representation within the study? I can a little bit. I mean, I think, so I'm actually currently working on the the New York specific version of the report. We had 51 orgs from New York take the survey. So we have enough of that data to do a New York specific report. So I've been working on that a little bit this past week. And so one of the things that I'll I'll say about the New York data that that I'm finding very interesting is there are a lot of places where it really matches the, the national data. 
and also there are places where it diverges. So, so nationally, 63% of groups that we surveyed said that they had experienced some hate violence incident in 2022. And in New York, it was only 43%. So, you know, I, we don't, we can't like make all the conclusions about exactly why, but I found that interesting. And one of the other pieces of, of the like New York versus other places is that although folks in New York were like resourced on kind of the same level as far as like folks who have like bulletproof glass, it's a very small number, it's like 6% across the country or, you know, things like buzzer systems, um, other, other sort of like physical infrastructure around safety. Those things were pretty consistent around the country and, and New York was, was in line with those. But one of the areas where New York is falling behind is in safety protocols. And so, so it's interesting because like in New York state, we know that um, there have been, you know, the governor has done a number of programs to fund extra security measures. So there's like direct state funding where you can like write a grant and get bulletproof glass. We do that at AVP. But they're not paying as much attention to what are the skills that folks need to be able to make a plan for safety. And that's, you know, in some ways it's like, that's like the, it's the like soft skills or the, you know, it's, it's like a little, a little bit more amorphous of like what that looks like and how that works and how it's quantifiable, but without engaging people in your community about how do you want safety to look? What kind of measures do you want to take? And what are your agreements around what safety looks like for you? That Those conversations are invaluable and people need to be having them and are just not fully. So many of our organizations and our programs don't have control over the physical space, right? Like, for example, we're a guest in the center's house every Tuesday for our walk-in free legal services clinic. I know Drag Story Hour is a guest in so many of the spaces that they serve the children's literacy program. So it, it can't just be like you were saying, can we add bulletproof glass? Yes, no. Right. But you can ask questions about what the security is in the spaces. So one of the things that we've been seeing with, with Drag Story Hour, recent conversation I have with some Drag Story Hour folks, is that we've been training them on asking host spaces, like, do you have do you have staff that are dedicated to security? Are they your staff or are they external contractors? Do you have a protocol for emergencies and what does it look like? And so folks have been asking those questions as yes, no questions. And then in the moment realizing like, oh, we don't actually see eye to eye on what this looks like as a protocol. So one of the, the like major conflicts we've seen is that, you know, like for a drag story hour or other um, event that is like hosted somewhere else, the, the hosting group comes in and is like, we don't want to involve the police and the, the physical space the managers of the physical space are like, oh, we already called the police. <laughs> so, you know, so like folks have very different ideas of what safety means. And if you don't talk about it directly, you're going to come up with wildly different ideas about what that looks like. So that's, to me, that's been one of the most interesting things about this, this work of like, what does it actually look like? Because we can all say like, we need safer spaces. People need to be safe and free to be themselves. And we all want that. We're all like on the same page on that way. But what does it actually look and feel like? And and what does it mean for people who are multiply marginalized? And, you know, safe space for one person doesn't necessarily mean that it feels safe for everybody. So how do you do that? Before we kind of jump into the how do you do that? I know we've kind of been talking around some of the core findings with the study, but we haven't had a chance to just really break down here's what we found out through this research. I yeah. think this might be a good opportunity to kind of take a pause and look at some of those key findings. And I, I invite both of you to comment on this part of the report. I'll let Leslie talk for a while. All right, great. Do you think I should start with just some hard numbers of the key findings? Yeah, let's start with the biggest key finding. I think the key finding that most jumps out of this report 
is that 63.2% of the of the agencies surveyed had experienced some type of harassment or violence and that possibly even more notably out of those 86.8% of community centers experienced at least one or more in-person incident or phone incident and then after that out of those 70 78.3% were targets of online attacks and i think what was so surprising at least to me as a consumer of this report was that this is so live I think that I walked into this report expecting online violence and targeting where there's anonymity and just internet trolls to be the prevailing form of violence. I thought it was really chilling that in-person and phone-based communication and threats and harassment was a more prevailing type and really says something about the state of the country that we're living in. There's so much awareness about the internet being like a difficult place and people paint it like a more hostile place than the actual world we all live in day to day. So it was a real wake-up call for me to see that that is not the situation at hand. For me, one of the the early pieces of data that became clear, like even before we we closed the survey, so back in like February or so, one of the things that we saw emerging was that groups that had experienced violence experienced multiple incidents. So we're not just seeing like, this thing happened one time, it was very likely that folks experienced multiple incidents and and not just one or two, but sometimes like four or more. And so that was like, okay, so this is getting both very common and very and, and relentless. It's just, it's happening constantly to folks. So I think that also was like a different way of, of, of seeing this because it also made me reflect on some of the previous ways we collected data, like in the NCVP data, when we were looking at um, individual incidents, we were not looking at serial incidents. We we're looking at one, you know, examples of one incident. So like this thing happened and it, and it got documented in the data and asking that question of like, okay, this happened, but did it happen again? And getting this like, resounding yes it happened over and over was like oh okay so this is a different thing this is something that we this is a a consistent threat and that's pretty horrifying and just to build on that i want to underscore probably some of the most troubling findings is that 165 of those incidents out of the 360 that were reported in in the survey that those 165 incidents were of known actors. So not an anonymous person, not a stranger in the night, but a known entity that was existing as a threat to the agency. And, you know, this was during the time recently, and it's still an issue, that the Proud Boys were really prevalent. 10.9% of the total incidences that were reported here were carried out by the Proud Boys, right? So an agency that is very much, or a group, an organization that is very much intent on terrorizing and trying to provoke a response and provoke a clash. And then for the other known entities, the the second majority of group was church groups who are have some religious opposition to LGBTQ people. And that was 7.3% of the total reports. So I'm just wondering, seeing such a high percentage of those known actors being involved in these incidents, how did that play out in terms of organizations being more or less willing to engage in the criminal legal system to address this? It's really all over the place. So I'm I'm glad to get to get into this um, in this conversation because the conversations around engaging with law enforcement and the criminal legal system are really hard to summarize and they're not very bullet pointy. You know, so basically the the answer is it's complicated, but there was a, a really big range of what people did and what their willingness to engage with the criminal legal system was. So, so for example, we asked, um, one of the questions that we asked of folks is, Okay, so you document this incident. Did you report it and to whom? So for groups saying that they they reported, we also asked, okay, so who did you report to? 
and we looked specifically at protests because that that was one of the like it's a very visible very traumatic form of of harassment and so we, we looked at that and most groups who experienced protests reported it to somebody but it depends on the on the situation so organizations that experienced protests were most likely to tell their staff about it and then also like other community spaces so like they told their staff they told their board they informed broader community and and some of them did did opt to to report to police but it depended on the kind of incident because you know so so one of the things that folks said like the the type of incident most likely to not be reported to anyone police or anyone else was phone phone calls that were harassing Sometimes it seems like that was because they just didn't know who was behind it. And a lot of the time folks said, we're not really clear that this is a crime or that anything could be done about it. So we just didn't report. So that that was one of the interesting things, too, of like people did this like did these assessments, did this kind of math of like what what rises to the level of we should report this because it will do something or like the severity of the incident. And, you know, I. One of the we also collected some some um, qualitative data of folks telling stories about different things that happened and and a couple of them like one one person was like we have an internal or one group said we have an internal agreement not to contact the police if an if an incident occurs but we have only had low level like phone calls letters and like some graffiti and and then they said. If things escalated, we're not sure if we would engage the police. So that's that's a really important nuance to think about of like what does that mean for how people are are thinking about it and and when there's like a threat or protest outside the space, people are much more likely to to report to the police and to report to the police while it's happening. And you know, and so we also asked like, okay, if you didn't report to the police. Who did you report to? But the other question was, if you didn't report to the police, why did you choose not to report to the police? And for the, you know, the most likely one was the uh, phone calls. And folks mostly said they weren't sure if it was a crime. They didn't really have proof of like who was doing it. So they didn't feel like they could report it. But in the threats of, of folks um, protesting or um, having people like physically outside the space and intimidating folks, the reasons that people gave included that the police wouldn't find it important or the police would be ineffective in dealing with it or that the group had an agreement not to call the police. So, so that's interesting because it reveals this whole other aspect of this that people are really doing the work to figure out like, okay, They've they've talked to each other about whether or not they would call the police, or they've made an assessment of of what that means. And you know, we also then looked really closely at the the protest slice of this, and found that you know, so in in that area, like twenty seven percent of groups said that they would call the police, twenty five percent thought the police would be ineffective. So the dig into that was okay. So why and of the groups that reported protests and um, did not engage with the police, um, we found that a little less than half made that call because they knew the, the local police to be aligned with white nationalist groups. So that, I mean, that's significant. And, you know, so, so it's like, okay, so people have real reasons that are very specific to local community dynamics about why they would and would not call the police and that there's a significant number of, of groups that are experiencing protests that are specifically like they're part of the problem explicitly they are white supremacist and we cannot ask them to protect us so that yeah so that was one of the really tricky and and nuanced pieces of this um the other thing that that we looked at with respect to calling the police and and reporting was this idea of okay so you called the police did you find it helpful were they did they feel safer 
And, I, you know, we had many conversations about these, these particular ways of asking these questions and thinking like, how do you measure these things like helpfulness or safety? You can't, they're feeling. And it was interesting to see that what people thought was helpful and what people thought was made them feel safer. And then the, for me, one of the like big questions really like going forward and into the future is what does resolution actually look like? And that's not a question that we asked in, in, in this survey. And I don't know how you would like put numbers to that exactly, (laughs) but really thinking like, okay, what, what do you need to happen to feel a sense of resolution? Because after talking to many people over the years, like, I actually don't believe that it's for most people resolution is like, this person is off the streets, or, you know, like, this person is in prison, I don't have to deal with them anymore. What does it look like to actually heal from hate violence in community? And that's, that's a question that I think needs to keep being asked and to not assume that a rat or an arrest an investigation, a like quick wrap up of like the bad person did the bad thing. And now they're off the streets is the answer to it feeling resolved because hate violence is a cultural problem. It's not a uh, one person you can arrest and make go away. And such a, a personal determination right what does a resolution look like for you it's it's almost a question that I hope every attorney is asking their question their clients at the outset of representation because it really is such a personal response Leslie I think you had some thoughts on this so I just want to say absolutely that this question of resolution is so difficult because you know in the the most extreme situations where you have an organization like the proud boys Okay, if you were to arrest one or two of the actors who actually engaged in conduct that crossed over into what is a crime, right, beyond just like a, a free speech protest, that wouldn't change the fact that you know that you have this entity that's actively recruiting and expanding that is targeting this much hate. And so the arrest, maybe it signals something positive in the culture that at least the police are taking it seriously and not just turning a blind eye because they share the same belief structure as the Proud Boys, which would certainly be worse, but it doesn't stop that problem from happening. And in some ways, there's always that fear that more police attention could be more media attention. And with some of these hate groups, any attention helps fuel it and draw in more activities. Uh, It causes some people to radicalize. And so it's so there's no easy solution here. No easy solution, but I know the report takes some time to go into recommendations and I want to make sure we have a lot of space to explore those recommendations and perhaps policy solutions, funding solutions, whatever the case may be. So I think this is kind of a good pivot point to to shift away from findings to recommendations, unless of course there are any key findings that I've missed and we haven't had a chance to shed the light on here. I guess before we shift, I do want to suggest that anyone who's listening this much into the podcast to actually read the report because it is this data is sliced so many different ways and it looks at many different angles that we're not even touching on here today because that would take hours. And so just we'll definitely include a, a copy link to the report with the podcast. And so please do take a chance to read it. So I open the floor to both of you to kind of take us through some of the recommendations that were a product of this process. Sure. So as a as a point of framing as we move into the the recommendations, we in the report there there are recommendations for policymakers and there are recommendations for community groups. And AVP really believes that you need both to be able to move forward and particularly with hate violence there isn't like a magical piece of legislation that's going to fix this and also moving legislation takes forever. So some of this does have to be held in community and community can generate solutions and practices to to practice community safety that is not reliant on a bill that gets passed or doesn't. And so for, for me, you know, as working in the community organizing and policy work, 
I think both are, are deeply, deeply important. And, you know, particularly like in the, the, at the beginning of our collaboration with Drag Story Hour, we had politicians that were curious about it. And it was also like, you folks could not move fast enough to, to make any difference. And, and community is gonna need to figure this out you know, amongst ourselves and, and think about what does safety look like and what are our specific asks for the larger community. So that's just a kind of like a preamble to what the recommendations are that we make. But at the kind of like top level, we do think it's important to improve the data collection and that that is at the federal level, but also increasing the ability of community organizations to collect their own data. A lot of the hate violence data that gets circulated in uh, news media is based on FBI data. So it's all like incidents that have been reported and investigated. And you've probably noticed that we use the phrase hate violence instead of hate crime a lot. And it's because the hate crime definition is, is pretty specific. And there are lots of things that people experience as hate violence, as, you know, bias that don't meet the legal definition of a hate crime. And those things should also be documented. And to be clear, we're not arguing for an expansion of hate crime law to, to include more forms of, of bias and discrimination because we don't believe that expanding that definition and expanding the potential for prosecution is putting money in the right place. So, so that, that's that kind of like nuanced piece about, about data that is really important to this. And of course, like data collection doesn't stop things from happening. We've been working with members of Congress across the country to visit with their local LGBT centers and other safe spaces during the August recess, which which is an interesting project to just get people connected to, like, what does queer safe space look like in your community and what are they facing? And it's very different around the country. And you can only get that perspective from people who are living it in your space. So So that's pretty key. Also, just developing those relationships and listening to folks to know what's going on. And also centering LGBTQ folks who are multiply marginalized is really, really important to this. And, and that's, that's just a, a key piece of this that, you know, people who have different uh, intersecting identities interact with law enforcement in different ways, experience hate in different ways, and that needs to be taken into account. So a lot of our, like, really dialed in like federal agency level recommendations that um, are included in some other materials are really about funding and resources and moving resources towards community-based organizations, towards groups, and um, ma- and making sure that those funds are, are more accessible because government grants are, are really difficult to, to navigate, especially for small groups. And, and when, you know, looking at the scope of the, the demographics of the different groups that, that took this survey, we considered a large group is, is a group with more than 25 employees. And the overwhelming majority of groups were much smaller than that. And sometimes volunteer run or had one staff member and some volunteers. So those groups are not getting federal grant money because it's just it's too onerous to make it happen. So really thinking about what are the mechanisms that can get funding and support to people and and really listen to folks about what safety means for them. So is it is it training? Is it skills? Is it bulletproof glass? Some combination of those things is important to really focus on, on all those pieces. And I think that's also part of a, a follow-up of figuring out like, okay, if folks are getting more of these resources, like, how is it panning out? Because that's, that's part of the challenge too, to, to figure that out. And on the community level, like really encouraging folks to document 
violence themselves and not rely on media and law enforcement to be the arbiters of what is and is not hate violence. And then it's all relationship building, like building relationships with people in community to figure out what a safety plan looks like, connecting with other queer orgs in the area and connecting with queer adjacent groups too. Like I did a training a couple months ago for some like LGBTQ youth organizations from around the country. And we were talking about like, how do you develop a safety plan? Who in your community can you tap into and ask them to, to come out and support? And one of the, the awesome ideas that came out of it from, from a group in, in the South was like, oh, we have a local women's rugby team. I wonder if they'd be interested in getting trained up to do safety, uh, to be safety marshals. And it was, you know, it was cool because it was like, okay, they're queer aligned. They have uniforms already. They're very visible. Like, let's connect with with local, the rugby team to see, you know, if they if they're willing to to show up and and get trained and and support in some of these events and spaces. And that was so specific to that particular place, but it was like, I love this. More ideas like that, please. I would definitely feel safer with a women's rugby team around. (laughs) Regardless of the circumstance, even just going to court, whatever I can have uh, be flanked by a a women's rugby team. That that sounds like a great day to me. Thank you for shining a spotlight on the difficulty of having sufficient resources to capture data, right? Because that that doesn't just happen and that is very challenging as you rightly point out for small nonprofit organizations to capture the data and then you kind of get stuck in this chicken egg grant cycle of well if we had more grant money we could give you more data well if you had more data we could give you more grant money so i i really want to thank you for shining a light on that and kind of giving that nuanced preamble before getting into the specific recommendations Obviously, we have a lot, we don't have a lot of rugby players, as far as I know, in our audience, but we have a lot of lawyers. So I'm wondering, are lawyers an untapped resource here in terms of perhaps mediating safety planning agreement sessions or or being a resource to make folks feel safer? Yes, I think lawyers are definitely an untapped resource that could get more involved with all different types of safety planning. So I think lawyers themselves particularly who work directly with the LGBTQ community, would benefit from receiving some of this direct line training. And I think it's beneficial to any attorney for their own professional development as well, because you have this new skill set to help keep people safe and encourage positive conversations, which could translate outside of the LGBTQ context too. You might end up finding out that it's relevant to an immigration case that you're handling or a domestic violence case that you're handling, or just translate to someplace that you might find yourself or political activities that you're involved in. But I also think that lawyers do drive a tremendous amount of conversation about how we're evolving the law. And that uh, a thread that you've heard throughout this discussion is this distinction between hate crimes and hate violence. And our definitions of hate crimes does not provide a real path forward to reporting many of these incidents, much less getting relief for them. And so as we try to describe how we can create both uh, law enforcement response and non-law enforcement response, it's important to help create a system where people feel like these incidents of hate violence can actually be recognized. And some of that could come from having, you know, some sort of either anti-discrimination statutes on the city level, right, that's against hate violence if we don't want to go with a criminal justice response, or making it more expansive beyond just sort of, when you look at hate crime statutes, there's some variation in them. But normally, they're always centered around sometimes property crimes like vandalism or arson, or pretty serious personal injury crimes, right? And so there's a tremendous amount of hate violence that happens before it hits the point of a severe personal injury crime. And we at AVP have callers all the time who have been you know, really targeted by hate violence, and there is no relief for them when they're seeking a criminal justice response to help keep them safe. 
Sometimes it's with a neighbor that they have to continuously see and they're experiencing this escalation and they know that they're in danger, but until it crosses this really devastating line, there's nothing for them to keep them safe. And so I think this, you know, in this report, we're looking specifically not about the individual, but about um, the LGBTQ community centers, but that conversation is still there and it's necessary about how do we create some sort of relief for people who are being targeted that happens prior to that dramatic flash in the pan incident. How has this report changed your work personally at the organization or or even the organization as a whole next steps? A heavy question. <laughs> I mean, I, any, any question. Because I know this report zero, just came like, out. That's fine yeah, too. Yeah. So. I think for me, the like figuring out this, how to talk about both individual incidents of, of hate violence, like the ones that legal services responds to and supports clients around and these other, you know, targeted planned events, trying to balance dealing with both of those is, is really important. And the other thing, so we we also, in addition to our two programs, the organizing program and, and the legal program, we also have client services program, which runs the hotline. And one of the things that folks have been saying to me from that program recently and through this process is we also work on intimate partner and sexual violence. And let's not invisibilize those as we talk about hate violence. So I think that's really key. And and also just knowing that in moments when there is an increase in hate violence coming at us from outside the community, IPV and sexual violence within the community do not go away. And, and in fact, sometimes they increase. So that's a really difficult thing to talk about, about the like intra-community violence. And also it's it's important and it's not disappearing. So we have to hold space for, for all those things. And they require different kinds of, of policy solutions and different kinds of legal and clinical responses. But it's important to, to keep all those things linked. Unfortunately, we know that hate violence is on the rise and New York City is not immune from these trending numbers in the wrong direction. I'm wondering if we could take a few minutes to talk about the recent death of O'Shea Sibley, given the national, honestly, international outreach we have in terms of our listeners. I know this has been a huge story locally within our community, but I'm not so sure. It's hard. It's harder to tell, I guess, in the online world, how far this story has traveled nationally and internationally. And this is a story that frankly needs to be told now more than ever. So I was wondering if we could take a few minutes to talk about O'Shea Sibley. Would either of you want to go through the the facts of the case, so to speak, in terms of what happened for our listeners outside of New York City that might not be aware of what happened? Sure, I can do that. So O'Shea Sibley, Sibley was a Black gay man who was a dancer and was in a car riding home from going to the beach in New Jersey with his friends on, on a Saturday night and they stopped at a gas station in, in Brooklyn and they were voguing to Beyonce playing on the speakers <laughs> and it drew the attention of some a, a group of, of men who um, told them to stop voguing and telling them that saying, you know, using slurs at them and then it turned into an escalation in which O'Shea was fatally stabbed. And I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking on a million different levels. And particularly in, in this moment of we're both having an increase in, in hate violence and part of how queer folks and particularly queer black folks and trans folks are fighting this is through queer joy. And that's what O'Shea and his friends were doing. They were being visibly joyous and he paid an awful price for it. So it's, I mean, it stirred up lots of different things within the communities. This happened in Midwood, which is a relatively conservative part of Brooklyn. And so it's 
created a lot of conversations about how do we keep each other safe? How do we respond with grief and rage and cultural shifts to prevent this from happening again? And, you know, this is not the first murder of a Black gay man this year in, in New York. DeAndre Matthews was murdered in, a, in an intimate partner violence hookup incident back in February, also in Brooklyn, actually not very far from where O'Shea Sibley was murdered. And so we know that, that this is like this, you know, this like cultural policing of Black men's sexuality and gender, and that it is homophobic and also anti-Black racism. And all those things need to be taken into consideration when thinking about the response, when thinking about how to support community. And so in the, the aftermath of this, a lot of different groups came together to host rallies and, and vigils in the, the days after his death. There was a memorial, a very public memorial held at the LGBT center. And there was also a rally and then a Vogan that happened at the gas station where the, the murder occurred. And, and as, you know, as ADP, like one of the things that we're, we're always thinking about is there are, in the aftermath of something as awful as this, there are multiple different communities and multiple people who need different kinds of support. So what does that look like? And so, you know, we outreach the family, encourage them to connect with the hotline um, and get support that way. And also like once, if a queer person has faced this kind of horrific violence, they become a public figure in a way and become a symbol of, of what many people in the community face. So there's a very real and raw response from many people who didn't know him. And so figuring out how to both make space for his direct people, his chosen fam, his ballroom community, and making space for grief and action in, in the broader communities of people who didn't know him, both are really important. And that's a hard thing to do. We do not do it perfectly. And one of the things that we, we're looking at is that, you know, we did a bunch of response the the immediate week following his death. Then we also are, are planning a, a, actually a, a dinner in Brooklyn for next week for some of the impacted communities for folks to come together and, and process about more and talk about like how we're working together going forward. And, and these are all really important pieces of, of this process of, of mourning and then coming back together to figure out what now. As you pointed out, not the first, not the last, not the only death this year in New York City. I think the timing is especially hurtful because this happened at the end of July after a, a really tough legislative season that we're all feeling nationwide, even here in New York, just given the onslaught of legislative attacks, particularly impacting our trans non-binary and gender non-conforming youth to then have as you, as you, I think it's so eloquently stated, just kind of that everyday moment of queer joy that somebody paid the ultimate price for that. So I think having this murder kind of come at the end of such an awful, awful, heartbreaking legislative season has made it even harder in a way. Yeah, I mean, and also in, in New York, for both of the last Pride seasons, there have been very public hate crimes, like the week leading up to our pride events. So in 2022, there was harassment of, of, a, of a queer man and a violent attack on him uh, on in the West Village that was actually on the Pride March route that happened the weekend before Pride. And this year, there was a, a man who was stabbed on, the, on a subway platform at Union Square again, the weekend before Pride. So to have those things happening also like during Pride Month and in such like public places where people move through all the time. And I, you know, and I know this past weekend there was also a, a stabbing of, of someone in on the Brooklyn Promenade that are all like homophobic and transphobic attacks. 
so it's, I think one of the things that's so difficult about this is that I don't want us to fly into this like hypervigilance and like we have to watch out even harder for ourselves because I also truly do not believe that this is queer people's responsibility to to correct this and we need allyship we need other people who are willing to to step in willing to speak up whether it's like in a casual conversation or an incident they see unfolding on the subway we need allies to to help us show that this is not okay and it cannot be all on queer people's hypervigilance you know self self-protection like all that all those kind of skills it can't be on us to stop this violence agreed leslie did you have any thoughts on this you wanted to share so this did remind me that i wanted to make sure to promote to the audience that we right now are recruiting actively for hotline volunteers we do our 40-hour training our crisis response training in september and that you know you can do the hotline training from really anywhere in the country because it is it's all remote and all you have to do is be available by phone and that uh, you only need to make a commitment to do one shift a month for the next 12 months. So that's 12 days where you're volunteering, but it really, um, it takes the community at large to keep a hotline running 24 seven. And it's so important right now that people have access to someone to talk to, whether or not they're the person who's directly impacted or if they're just a person who's feeling the collective traumatic effects of all of this violence. We will definitely share the link for the report and then the training opportunity for the call for helpline volunteers. And depending on the date of the dinner, if this podcast episode goes out prior to that, we're happy to push that as well. So our listeners have access to all of these amazing resources. Parting thoughts that we can share before we wrap up our hour. I just want to quickly acknowledge how amazing the work that Adesha has done and their contributions to all of this work. It's been uh, amazing just for me to sit and learn more about this other side of the agency that I work for today. I think just in in closing, like I think one of the things that was really apparent to me in the, the my first year at AVP, because we have COPA, which does the, the organizing and public advocacy work, legal services and client services as our three major programs. I remember seeing folks like kind of scrabbling to be like, well, our department does the most important work. Like you couldn't, AVP couldn't exist without this. And all three programs are correct. <laughs> that These things are, are all essential to how AVP functions. And I think that you know, as I continue on in my advocacy work, I feel like I've gained more respect for social workers and lawyers who have very different roles in, in this work than I do. And we need all of it. Absolutely. One Adisha. more quick call out. We are hiring for a staff attorney position. We're open to both staff attorney and senior staff attorneys. So if you listen to this podcast and you're an attorney who really wants to devote their lives to this work, please check out AVP's website for the job posting. And we'll be pushing that posting again among our membership email blasts as well. So if you're not already a member, make sure that you're renewing. This is our membership renewal season. But before I get to that final plug. I'm going to take a moment to thank Leslie and Daisha for their work on not only this report, but also breaking this down in a really accessible way, right? We're lawyers, we're not mathematicians. So thank you so much for taking us through the numbers in a really easy to digest, fun, as fun as these kind of numbers can be, but a fun, inviting kind of way. And thank you for the direct legal services work that you're doing, Leslie. It was a pleasure speaking with both of you today. But for our attorney, law student, judge, and legal professional listeners in the audience, we are still in peak bar membership renewal season. Visit www.lgbtbarny.org 
backslash membership hyphen plans to join or renew today. Law student membership is free and first year membership is discounted as low as $36 per year. You can't beat that. Be a part of one of the oldest and largest LGBTQ plus bar associations in the country as we celebrate our 45th or Sapphire anniversary throughout 2023. Again, Deisha, Leslie, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you as always to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.